Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm here with Father Boniface Hicks and I am Joe Rocky. And we're continuing a conversation we had in our last podcast about why is Father in Rome, which is to learn how to teach people how to become better priests and and kind of starting off where we left off in the last podcast was how do we how do you get people into the seminary and then once they're there, how do we keep going through the process of making them into the best priests we can and inevitably saints. So one of the questions I had that came from there was that we have, you gave a couple examples that someone wasn't asked how to become a priest. They, they never really, maybe they had it in the one point they thought about but it left away. But is part of this how to reach out to more people to think that to, to learn how to listen to what some of those messages might be and and to let someone out there listening who might know someone in their life who's thinking about what are some signs that that at least other people have had that, that you've seen go through your doors and you know what might be some things to look out for well one thing that's still necessary in the Roman Rite is that they're not married okay. <laughs> so that's a good starting point um, if you have a single man who I've spoken a bit about the human qualities who has some of the human qualities the natural virtues that would make a good priest someone who is generous who's sensitive who has a servant's heart uh, those qualities are important if you think about the priest you know and you like <laughs> well the, the foundation of uh, the qualities that make those men good priests when you see those in a young man just asking the question did you ever think about the priesthood or simply stating I could see you being a good priest now of course there's also going to be a certain affinity to the faith there are people that kind of get it and sometimes it's hard to form that sense of the faith in someone it's, it seems to be somewhat of a gift now they don't need to be reading the catechism in their free time in order to qualify for seminary but uh, sometimes there is a significant conversion that takes place and someone's eyes are really opened and they really do love to read the Bible and love to read the catechism and love to learn more and they've always got some spiritual book in their hand well that's, that's a good candidate um, but again you know I uh, younger boys young men who, who love to serve at mass who seem to have a little bit more attentiveness and and are, are drawn in a little bit more by the mysteries who seem to have a little more attraction to the Lord simply asking the question you know do, do you ever think about the priesthood or do you ever ask Jesus what what he wants for your life that um, whether he would you know what he's calling you to I think and and ultimately bringing people to prayer my own vocation really ripened in a trip that I took to World Youth Day in Paris in 1997 and the priest who took me and five other students from Penn State four of us were men and three of us are now priests <laughs> <laughs> and not not all of them discerned in that particular experience but uh, when I went to World Youth Day I uh, being apart from my normal life, being surrounded by other Catholics, 
having time for silence and prayer, being exposed to the greatness of the of the church, of the greatness of Christ, of uh, of the totality of his his call for transformation and to follow him. Just being in that kind of setting is very helpful. So fostering those settings for people, taking those trips. I know countless priests who began to discern their vocation, had their conversion in Medjugorje on pilgrimage there, uh, where a number of wonderful things happen in terms of prayer and confession and masses and adoration and tremendous uh, Marian devotion. So being in a different place, being on pilgrimage, having a regular prayer life, taking young uh taking boys, young men to adoration, to pray, all of these things are, are good ways to foster just a, just a question. Mm-hmm. You know, am I called? What is God calling me to? So, um, two follow-up questions to that. One's probably a quick and easy answer, and then the second one's going to probably be a little bit more. Why does it have to be a guy? I guess that's always a question I've had, and I know that, that there's, um, you know, that, that's is one Is that of, the quick and easy one? Maybe maybe that's the hard one. Uh, my, 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 maybe uh, maybe I have them backwards. And then the second one was, how do you? Maybe, maybe this is an entire another cast for itself. Maybe continue on the earlier ones we did on prayer. But how do you know, as the recipient now, when you are being called? Um, you know, how do you? How do you discern this is this is Jesus telling me we, we got to kind of look into this a little bit closer? So those are the two questions. I don't know if either of them are quick and easy in retrospect, but those were, were the two I, that came to me there. Well, the first question was quick and easy for about 1970 years, uh, and it only became difficult in the last 40 years, I think. And it comes from a variety of things where our our call for equality has become so radical that we refuse to see any difference between men and women and that makes things more complicated mm-hmm. uh, that we refuse to see any difference now I like to say it doesn't matter how much I want it I can never have a baby yeah. can't do it women are different than men they are capable of having babies so I like to say that kind of thing, just to say there is a difference, mm-hmm. and we cannot simply wipe away that difference, nor should we. There's a beautiful complementarity between men and women, and we should appreciate the dimensions of that complementarity. So if I can establish that there is a difference, and then I can say, well, so what is it uh, about priesthood? Well, the one simple place to go to is that the priest is called to be in the person of Christ who is the bridegroom of the church. A lot of times people will reduce priesthood to its function. A priest is compassionate. A priest is present at the, at, uh, for a dying person. A priest celebrates the Mass and preaches. And can't women do all of those things? And in fact, I mean, let's be honest, Women have a natural capacity for relationships, a mm-hmm. natural capacity for compassion, a natural capacity perhaps for teaching and even speaking, and some of these things more than men do. And we can all point to six women who would seem to be you know, better in those areas than your parish priest. 
Mm-hmm. So part of that is because your priest hasn't been formed well enough, and we're working on that. But <laughs> another part of that is that there's more to priesthood than these interpersonal, relational kinds of things, and that's something sacramental, that the priest presents the face of Christ who is divine bridegroom. And women can be a lot of things better than men, but they're not better bridegrooms than men are. Mm-hmm. Priest is also called to be a spiritual father, which is different than a mother. Although we like to put those things in the same category and just say, oh, one parent's as good as another, and two fathers or two mothers or these kinds of things, the fact is that a father is different than a mother. And a priest is called to be a spiritual father. And women do a lot of things better than men, but they're not better fathers than men are. And so, now again, fundamentally we can't just reduce this to function, but I'm just trying to build up some logic behind the the reservation of holy orders to men alone. Now, there's another uh, point or two that I can make about this. I'm trying to provide some logic behind this. If somebody is dead set against um, priesthood being reserved to men mm-hmm. I don't know I, it's, a, it's such a, a touchy issue and people get so animated about this but I can then say th- this is actually a dogmatic teaching of the church so John Paul II declared with absolute authority that is to say ex cathedra as a dogmatic statement that priesthood is reserved to men only. So there's no discussion about this. Mm-hmm. There's no option about this. Pope Benedict and Pope Francis also have affirmed very clearly that this is the case. So so it is the case. And part of that is because in 2,000 years, the Church has always done this. Now, people don't like that argument either, but it's a, a point of discernment that Christ only called men. And we could say, oh, well, he was affected by you know, there there was a misogynistic culture. People thought men were better than women. Jesus wasn't affected by any of that. He was followed by many women, and he did many things that drew a lot of criticism from that misogynistic culture. Oh, he wouldn't let her touch him if he knew what kind of woman that was, said Simon the Pharisee. Jesus is not interested in what the culture thinks. Mm-hmm. If he meant to call a woman as an apostle, he would have called a woman as an apostle. He wasn't bound by the pressures of his time, obviously. He was crucified because he stood against those pressures. So, if he wanted to establish that, then he would have established that. And then the Church, furthermore, has discerned that that's the case and has borne that out through the entire 2,000-year history. So, we just we live in this particular time now that we're not more enlightened, we just, you know, whatever, have more complaints and are more rebellious or something, and so mm-hmm. we sort of throw up this idea but um, anyway, so that was, a, that was a long answer. And then uh, to give you another long answer, actually the second one might be a little bit shorter. <laughs> How does a man discern that he's being called to the priesthood? Well, he doesn't discern that on his own. He feels that call, hears that internally. I, for myself, I was in prayer. I had a desire from even before I was baptized. I was baptized at age 21, and I'd already started thinking about the priesthood nine months before that. Uh, And I had a strong desire continuing through my baptism. It was something that I was very drawn to. So desire is important. 
and that's God often works through our desires. We should pay attention to those things. And then, at the same time, I couldn't say that I really heard in prayer, because I have a sense in prayer when God speaks. Mm-hmm. It's not absolute. I don't get things perfectly right, but I have a sense in prayer of when God speaks. And I couldn't say firmly I had ever heard that from God, that I could say I really heard him tell me that I really believed he wanted me to be a priest. I knew it was my desire. And my experience in prayer in France was that experience where I was very open to the Lord. I was reading the scriptures. I was before the Blessed Sacrament in adoration and uh, you know, experiencing a lot of grace. And I said to the Lord, you know, I want to do whatever you want me to do because I really love you and I want to follow you and I want to serve you. And then I said, do you want me to be a priest? And I knew what I wanted to hear. (laughs) But I could also say that I really believed in that moment that it is what I heard was a yes. Yes, I want you to be a priest. Now, I came away from that experience and I shared it with my spiritual director and he said, he rejoiced with me how beautiful that was and he mm-hmm. celebrated that moment and he said you know and that's uh, and we'll see how the Lord keeps guiding you <laughs> so I don't simply present that card to the local bishop and then he ordains me you know there's still a process of discernment not only I have to be convinced but the church has to be convinced that I'm called to be a priest and so then I go through a process of discernment in my case I looked into religious orders and I applied for the religious order. I talked to the vocation director. The community with the abbot and the vocation council discerned, and they told me to, you know, they would get back to me, and I made some visits. Anyway, then they eventually allowed me to come in. And then even after entering, there's an ongoing discernment. It's four years before I made solemn vows, and then it's six years before I'm ordained a priest. So anyway, there's there's that initial discernment, which is, I believe that I'm called. I I believe that this is where the Lord is leading me. I can see a desire in myself. Um, maybe it's also confirmed by others. And ultimately I can say, I, I, I believe that this is where the Lord is leading me. Yeah, that discernment seems to be a, a thing. Because uh, as you mentioned it here, being very critical in, in the formation of allowing people to become priests, it's also something that we talked about a couple casts ago about how I'm getting discerned in the process of wanting to become married in in the process and that's just something that before going through this process myself and granted on the marriage side I never knew existed or was a thing you know I thought the hardest part was to making her like me enough to want to get married I thought I had to make sure the church liked me too so um, yeah well I would say actually if I can make the, uh, it's a very important analogy to make, and, and if I can talk about the stages of formation quickly mm-hmm. in light of dating and marriage, there's a, a period of dating where you might be dating several people. You know, you go out on a date, you get to know somebody, you talk to another person, and that would be what uh, a young man goes through before he enters the seminary. So he might be looking into the seminary, he might be maybe, you know, talking with a girl, he might be, anyway. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of an open dating. 
and he might move into a more exclusive discernment of the church before entering seminary, but then certainly when he enters seminary, no more dating. <laughs> now he is he's, he's dating exclusively one person. Mm-hmm. He's dating the church, and that's an exclusive relationship. And that's going to continue for several years. And then the point of commitment after about three years is the new you know, mode of that. Uh, but anyway, about three or four years, he, he enters into what's called candidacy if he's in a diocese. And he makes that definitive statement. That's like engagement. Okay. And then engagement is focused. Engagement isn't asking the question so much anymore. Like you said, the, the church might be asking the question still, or you know, there's still still evaluation of the candidate for holy orders or for marriage. But but the candidate isn't asking the question anymore. He's moving forward, and he wants to be formed in how he can be a good priest. Just like in your engagement, and that's the point of marriage preparation, to be formed to have a good marriage. You're set on that. You're in this relationship. You're planning to move forward. Now the formation. And and that's where Pope Francis has basically said, not just Pope Francis, but anyway, in, uh, his, his document on marriage and family, a man studies is formed for eight years for priesthood. What is it for marriage? You know, like three meetings with a priest or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a... Uh, the, the discrepancy there is massive, mm-hmm. just massive. And so, you know, is there a place for a little bit more structured formation for marriage that would really help us to have holier marriages and to reduce the, the number of marriages that, that end in divorce? Yeah. Um, on that note, I, I guess a couple of questions far, but, and it can apply to both sides, is that Right now, we're talking about all the education that allows you to enter into the first step of becoming a priest. But is there a process in effect that once you already are a priest, almost like a continuing training as it would be in my world, that does that exist in, in the priesthood realms? Well, I tell you, Joe, I, it's like you we're, we're meeting with the congregation for the clergy. I, you're amazing. <laughs> yeah, there's a... We uh, we call that ongoing formation. Mm-hmm. We call seminary initial formation, and then once a man is ordained, ongoing formation. And it's not so good right now. There were maybe a little while ago, you know, it just depends on the diocese. But I'm very critical of ongoing the problems in ongoing formation. But it's part of this new uh, this new ratio includes ongoing formation. So, obviously you have being involved in how to teach this, and you've seen what's working and what isn't working, as given by the fact that you just said you're not exactly thrilled about the way that the continuing process is working. So, my my question with that is, is with that kind of insight, are you able to change things as you see fit or is it a much slower process than just you jumping at something and fixing it yourself like the way that I would like if I, I don't like how a wall's painted I can just go and do it I don't need to reteach all my painters I can just do something and it might not work forever but it'll work in the moment in that house so in your world how does that work and how should it work yeah that's a nice question and a nice analogy 
I mean, I can provide ongoing formation. I can seek it for myself, and I can provide it for others. And I do in a personal way by offering spiritual direction to priests. And I do spiritual direction with a number of priests. And so that becomes a mode, a form of ongoing formation for priests. Uh, it's also something very much on my heart and my mind these days to offer some kind of seminar, a week-long course. Uh, next spring, I may offer an online course in spiritual direction as a way of reaching out for ongoing formation for priests. Uh, dioceses can implement these things, and so uh, I also uh, am in discussion with some, some men in dioceses who are looking at ongoing formation, what's possible. Also through We Are One Body Radio, it's my own little ongoing formation for priests because I say, hey, Father so-and-so, how about we look at this document that Pope Francis wrote and we talk about it. And then the process of reading and discussing um, keeps priests engaged in some uh, ongoing formation. So I, I have some little outreaches that I can do, but the thing that's really missing is some accountability. I mean, I can reach out to a certain number of priests. There are certain priests who are seeking it, but some priests need a kick in the backside to mm -hmm. uh, get engaged with it, and I, ca I can't do that other than just my own fraternal outreach. Um, you know, that's where we need some program, some accountability that, like, I don't know what you have to go through, Joe, but I know in a lot of professions they have some kind of credits that you have to get and you have to re-up your license for five years mm -hmm. or whatever and you've got to prove that you've done a certain level of ongoing for me. So I think we need that. I don't think there's any reason that priesthood should be any different than anything else, that there's a professional expectation that should be uh, applied. Yeah, because on that note, I, I guess that this is part of it, which makes your yours so much more difficult than mine is that at the end of the day if I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing I can close my shop and go do something completely different um, and you know when I go home for the day I'm not still I mean I technically am a contractor but I don't need to take it home with me you can't really turn off being a priest so not if you want to be a good one I didn't even know you could do it if you wanted to be a bad one. <laughs> I thought that it was just something that was always part of you that that is inevitable. And I guess kind of the thought that I was having was that, again, to, to make this in my, in my world, is that you can go, and, and probably anyone who's ever been in a lumber store has experienced this, where a board can start off perfectly straight and then about six feet down or so it develops a little wobble and essentially it becomes you can't frame with it because it won't be able to bear weight because it's not a straight piece of lumber anymore and how I think in all of our lives we, we have these spots where we start off good but can drift away that's all I was asking it if there was an ongoing process of for, for priests to do that and then by conjunction, once it becomes on my side, how do you do that for the marriage side? Because, you know, Teresa and I are reading books and all this stuff about how to be better communicators, identify those differences about how men and women are different, let alone how our personalities are different, even if we're both the uh, 
both both the same. But um, so that that's where my question was was is is that kind of thought process something that's coming along, or is that part of someone needs to just go for it and see what happens? Well, uh, again, it's a great question. The for marriage, some things kick in uh, as part of the natural process of being married, like having children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that uh, that just transforms things and uh, throws a, a wrench in the works in a way that kind of requires a married couple to get their balance again and rediscover each other again and uh, handle all the things that come up and. Inevitably, they they turn to parents uh, or to friends to say, "How do you deal with this? Like, how do we handle this? What what do we what's what's important here?" So, some of that kind of uh, accompaniment takes place, um, and then, yeah, being connected with other married couples is an important thing because we're we're always looking and seeing well, what what are they doing? How do they handle this? How do they love each other? How do they to grow. And then another thing that I, I've heard said, and I know a number of people have done, is something like marriage encounter. About five years into marriage is a great idea. Marriage encounter is a, a retreat movement mm-hmm. that a couple would take a weekend apart by themselves. And if five years into marriage they can't find a weekend to get away, then uh, that's a message <laughs> that something is not working. Uh, but they can have the children, however small, somebody else can take care of for a weekend. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and um, then Marriage Encounter helps them to rediscover some things and reflect on their marriage, reflect on where they've come and what, where the difficulties are and where they need to communicate. And, uh, and those, those kinds of uh, retreats or workshops or uh, engagement with other married couples also with older married couples, uh, also maybe even for, you know, if there are some particular issues, some pastoral counseling with the priest or some spiritual direction. Anyway, a lot of different opportunities, but but it's the, it takes the initiative of the married couple, certainly. Nobody's uh, going to disqualify your marriage because you haven't gotten your ongoing probation. <laughs> so. Well, I, I guess that's, that's where it, it's coming from, is that, you know, there's with Everything that's out there. I mean, I mean, let's face it. You can put anything you want on the internet without even having to have any proof behind it. Um, the problems getting everywhere. So that's why I was asking: is that there's something that's grounded that you know will work, or at least is grounded from the right starting soil, the right starting point that has a chance of working, whether you can implement it or not. So that was that question. And then the other thing was something that you mentioned before which was the accountability part of it and maybe this is because this is me but I tend to find that whenever I'm holding people accountable I am called mean or bad or some other not so pleasant thing but at the end of the day it's holding someone accountable and it only exists because they didn't do what they were supposed to is there a way that since this is part of what you're teaching, the church emphasizes how to do that better and to still get the results that we need, but without, I don't know, burning down the whole house. 
Well, I think that the more that we can show that it's reasonable, that they're not arbitrary hoops that we have to jump through, that we can help people see the value in it and that really they want to seek it for themselves and we just want to kind of give them the little encouragement in that process. I think that's really the key, that um, the, the reasonableness of it and the value of it are clearly articulated, that it's not just being a meanie and <laughs> yeah. pushing people to stand on their head for no reason. But, but there is a real value. I don't think it takes much observation to, to see that. Well, that's good. That's good. So, yeah, listen, thank you for answering all these questions that I had here today. I know that, that we had had a bunch. So I'm really glad that, that you were able to be in Rome. I thank everyone out there for listening to us today. And please keep telling your friends and subscribing to us. Have a great week, everyone.